0: Chapters Four and Five of *The Portrait of a Lady* by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four. Missus Ludlow was the eldest of the three sisters, and it was usually thought the most sensible. The classification being in general that Lillian was the practical one, Edith the beauty, and Isabel the intellectual superior. Mrs. Keyes, in the second of the group, was the wife of an officer of the United States Engineers, and, as our history is not further concerned with her, it will suffice that she was indeed very pretty, and that she formed the ornament of those various military stations chiefly in the unfashionable West, to which, to her deep chagrin, her husband was successively relegated. Lillian had married a New York lawyer, a young man with a loud voice, and an enthusiasm for his profession the match was not brilliant any more than edith's but lillian had occasionally been spoken of as a young woman who might be thankful to marry at all she was so much plainer than her sisters she was however very happy and now as the mother of two peremptory little boys and the mistress of a wedge of brownstone violently driven into fifty-third street seemed to exult in her condition as in a bold escape She was short and solid, and her claim to figure was questioned, but she was conceded presence, though not majesty. She had, moreover, as people said, improved since her marriage, and the two things in life of which she was most distinctly conscious were her husband's force in argument and her sister Isabel's originality. "'I've never kept up with Isabel. It would have taken all my time,' she had often remarked, in spite of which, however, she held her rather wistfully in sight watching her as a motherly spaniel might watch a free greyhound i want to see her safely married that's what i want to see she frequently noted to her husband well i must say i should have no particular desire to marry her edmund ludlow was accustomed to answer in an extremely audible tone i know you say that for argument you always take the opposite ground I don't see what you've got against her except that she's so original well i don't like originals i like translations mr ludlow had more than once replied isabel's written in a foreign tongue i can't make her out she ought to marry an armenian or a portuguese that's just what i'm afraid she'll do cried lillian who thought isabel capable of anything she listened with great interest to the girl's account of mrs touchett's appearance and in the evening prepared to comply with their aunt's commands. Of what Isabel then said, no report has remained, but her sister's words had doubtlessly prompted a word spoken to her husband, as the two were making ready for their visit. I do hope immensely she'll do something handsome for Isabel. She has evidently taken a great fancy to her. "'What is it you wish her to do?' Edmund Ludlow asked. "'Make her a big present.' "'No, indeed. Nothing of the sort. But take an interest in her. Sympathise with her. She's evidently just the sort of person to appreciate her. She has lived so much in foreign society. She told Isabel all about it. You know, you've always thought Isabel rather foreign.' "'You want her to give her a little foreign sympathy, eh? Don't you think she gets enough at home?' "'Well, she ought to go abroad,' said Mrs. Ludlow.' she's just the person to go abroad and you want the old lady to take her is that it she has offered to take her she's dying to have isabel go but what i want her to do when she gets her there is to give her all the advantages i'm sure all we've got to do said mrs ludlow is to give her a chance a chance for what a chance to develop oh moses edmund ludlow exclaimed I hope she isn't going to develop any more.' "'If I were not sure you only said that for an argument, I should feel very badly,' his wife replied. "'But you know you love her.' "'Do you know I love you?' the young man said jocosely to Isabel a little later, while he brushed his hat. "'I'm sure I don't care whether you do or not,' exclaimed the girl, whose voice and smile, however, were less haughty than her words. "'Oh, she feels so grand since Mrs. Touchett's visit,' said her sister. "'But Isabel challenged this assertion with a good deal of seriousness. "'You must not say that, Lily. I don't feel grand at all.' "'I'm sure there's no harm,' said the conciliatory Lily. "'Ah, but there's nothing in Mrs. Touchett's visit to make one feel grand.' "'Oh,' exclaimed Ludlow. "'she's grander than ever.' Whenever I feel grand, said the girl, it will be for a better reason. Whether she felt grand or no, she at any rate felt different, felt as if something had happened to her. Left to herself for the evening, she sat a while under the lamp, her hands empty, her usual avocations unheeded. Then she rose and moved about the room, and from one room to another, preferring the places where the vague lamplight expired she was restless and even agitated. At moments she trembled a little. The importance of what had happened was out of proportion to its appearance. There had really been a change in her life. What it would bring with it was as yet extremely indefinite, but Isabel was in a situation that gave a value to any change. She had a desire to leave the past behind her and, as she said to herself, to begin afresh. This desire, indeed, was not a birth of the present occasion. It was as familiar as the sound of the rain upon the window, and it had led her to beginning afresh a great many times. She closed her eyes as she sat in one of the dusky corners of the quiet parlour. But it was not with a desire for dozing forgetfulness. It was, on the contrary, because she felt too wide-eyed, and wished to check the sense of seeing too many things at once. Her imagination was by habit ridiculously active. When the door was not open, it jumped out of the window. She was not accustomed, indeed, to keep it behind bolts, and, at important moments, when she would have been thankful to make use of her judgment alone, she paid the penalty of having given undue encouragement to the faculty of seeing without judging. At present, with her sense that the note of change had been struck, came gradually a host of images of the things she was leaving behind her. The years and hours of her life came back to her, and for a long time, in a stillness broken only by the ticking of the big bronze clock, she passed them in review. It had been a very happy life, and she had been a very fortunate person. This was the truth that seemed to emerge most vividly. She had had the best of everything, and in a world in which the circumstances of so many people made them unenviable, it was an advantage never to have known anything particularly unpleasant. It appeared to Isabel that the unpleasant had been even too absent from her knowledge, for she had gathered from her acquaintance with literature that it was often a source of interest and even of instruction. Her father had kept it away from her, her handsome, much-loved father, who always had such an aversion to it it was a great felicity to have been his daughter isabel rose even to pride in her parentage since his death she had seemed to see him as turning his braver side to his children and as not having managed to ignore the ugly quite so much in practice as in aspiration but this only made her tenderness for him greater it was scarcely even painful to have to suppose him too generous, too good-natured, too indifferent to sordid considerations. Many persons had held that he carried this indifference too far, especially the large number of those to whom he owed money. Of their opinions, Isabel was never very definitely informed. But it may interest the reader to know that, while they had recognized in the late Mr. Archer a remarkably handsome head and a very taking manner, indeed as one of them had said he was always taking something they had declared that he was making a very poor use of his life he had squandered a substantial fortune he had been deplorably convivial he was known to have gambled freely a few very harsh critics went so far to say that he had not even brought up his daughters they had had no regular education and no permanent home they had been at once spoiled and neglected they had lived with nursemaids and governesses usually very bad ones or had been sent to superficial schools kept by the french from which at the end of a month they had been removed in tears this view of the matter would have excited isabel's indignation for to her own sense her opportunities had been large even when her father had left his daughters for three months at neuchâtel with a French Bond, who had eloped with a Russian nobleman staying at the same hotel. Even in this irregular situation, an incident of the girl's eleventh year, she had been neither frightened nor ashamed, but had thought it a romantic episode in a liberal education. Her father had a large way of looking at life, of which his restlessness and even his occasional incoherency of conduct had been only a proof. He wished his daughters even his children to see as much of the world as possible and it was for this purpose that before isabel was fourteen he had transported them three times across the atlantic giving them on each occasion however but a few months view of the subject proposed a course which had whetted our heroine's curiosity without enabling her to satisfy it she ought to have been a partisan of her father for she was the member of his trio who most made up to him for the disagreeables he didn't mention. In his last days, his general willingness to take leave of a world in which the difficulty of doing so as one liked appeared to increase as one grew older, had been sensibly modified by the pain of separation from his clever, his superior, his remarkable girl. Later, when the journeys to Europe had ceased, He still had shown his children all sorts of indulgence, and if he had been troubled about money matters, nothing ever disturbed their irreflective consciousness of many possessions. Isabel, though she danced very well, had not the recollection of having been in New York a successful member of the choreographic circle. Her sister Edith was, as everyone said, so very much more fetching edith was so striking an example of success that isabel could have no illusions as to what constituted this advantage or as to the limits of her own power to frisk and jump and shriek above all with rightness of effect nineteen persons out of twenty including the younger sister herself pronounced edith infinitely the prettier of the two but the twentieth besides reversing this judgment had the entertainment of thinking all the others aesthetic vulgarians, isabel had in the depths of her nature an even more unquenchable desire to please than edith but the depths of this young lady's nature were a very out-of-the-way place between which and the surface communication was interrupted by a dozen capricious forces she saw the young men who came in large numbers to see her sister but as a general thing they were afraid of her. They had a belief that some special preparation was required for talking with her. Her reputation of reading a great deal hung about her like the cloudy envelope of a goddess in an epic. It was supposed to engender difficult questions, and to keep the conversation at a low temperature. The poor girl liked to be thought clever, but she hated to be thought bookish. She used to read in secret, and though her memory was excellent to abstain from showy reference she had a great desire for knowledge but she really preferred almost any source of information to the printed page she had an immense curiosity about life and was constantly staring and wondering she carried within herself a great fund of life and her deepest enjoyment was to feel the continuity between the movements of her own soul and the agitations of the world. For this reason she was fond of seeing great crowds and large stretches of country, of reading about revolutions and wars, of looking at historical pictures, a class of efforts as to which she had often committed the conscious solecism of forgiving them much bad painting for the sake of the subject while the civil war was on she was still a very young girl but she passed months of this long period in a state of almost passionate excitement in which she felt herself at times to her extreme confusion stirred almost indiscriminately by the valour of either army of course the circumspection of suspicious swains had never gone the length of making her a social proscript for the number of those whose hearts as they approached her Beat only just fast enough to remind them they had heads as well, had kept her unacquainted with the supreme disciplines of her sex and age. She had had everything a girl could have—kindness, admiration, bonbons, bouquets, the sense of exclusion from none of the privileges of the world she lived in, abundant opportunity for dancing, plenty of new dresses, the London spectator, the latest publications, the music of Gounod, the poetry of Browning, the prose of George Eliot. These things now, as memory played over them, resolved themselves into a multitude of scenes and figures. Forgotten things came back to her. Many others, which she had lately thought of great moment, dropped out of sight. The result was kaleidoscopic, but the movement of the instrument was checked at last, by the servants coming in with the name of a gentleman. The name of the gentleman was Caspar Goodwood. He was a straight young man from Boston, who had known Miss Archer for the last twelve months, and who, thinking her the most beautiful young woman of her time, had pronounced the time, according to the rule I have hinted at, a foolish period of history. He sometimes wrote to her, and had within a week or two written from New York, She had thought it very possible he would come in, had indeed all the rainy day been vaguely expecting him. Now that she learned he was there, nevertheless, she felt no eagerness to receive him. He was the finest young man she had ever seen, and indeed quite a splendid young man. He inspired her with a sentiment of high, of rare respect. She had never felt equally moved to it by any other person. He was supposed by the world in general to wish to marry her, but this, of course, was between themselves. It at least may be affirmed that he had travelled from New York to Albany expressly to see her, having learned in the former city, where he was spending a few days, and where he had hoped to find her, that she was still at the State capital. Isabel delayed for some minutes to go to him. She moved about the room with a new sense of complications but at last she presented herself and found him standing near the lamp he was tall strong and somewhat stiff he was also lean and brown he was not romantically he was much rather obscurely handsome but his physiognomy had an air of requesting your attention which it rewarded according to the charm you found in the blue eyes of remarkable fixedness the eyes of a complexion other than his own, and a jaw of the somewhat angular mould which is supposed to bespeak resolution. Isabel said to herself that it bespoke resolution to-night, in spite of which, in half an hour, Caspar Goodwood, who had arrived hopeful as well as resolute, took his way back to his lodging with the feeling of a man defeated. He was not, it may be added, a man weakly to accept defeat. End of chapter four. CHAPTER Five. Ralph Touchett was a philosopher, but nevertheless he knocked at his mother's door at a quarter to seven with a good deal of eagerness. Even philosophers have their preferences, and it must be admitted that of his progenitors his father ministered most to his sense of the sweetness of filial dependence. His father as he had often said to himself, was the more motherly. His mother, on the other hand, was paternal, and even, according to the slang of the day, gubernatorial. She was nevertheless very fond of her only child, and had always insisted on his spending three months of the year with her. Ralph rendered perfect justice to her affection, and knew that in her thoughts, and her thoroughly arranged and servanted life, his turn always came after the other nearest subjects of her solicitude the various punctualities of performance of the workers of her will he found her completely dressed for dinner but she embraced her boy with her gloved hands and made him sit on the sofa beside her she inquired very scrupulously about her husband's health and about the young man's own and receiving no very brilliant account of either remarked that she was more than ever convinced of her wisdom in not exposing herself to the English climate. In this case she also might have given way. Ralph smiled at the idea of his mother's giving way, but made no point of reminding her that his own infirmity was not the result of the English climate, from which he absented himself for a considerable part of each year. He had been a very small boy when his father, daniel tracy touchett a native of rutland in the state of vermont came to england as subordinate partner in a banking-house where some ten years later he gained preponderant control daniel touchett saw before him a lifelong residence in his adopted country of which from the first he took a simple sane and accommodating view but as he said to himself he had no intention of disamericanizing nor had he a desire to teach his only son any such subtle art. It had been for himself so very soluble a problem to live in England, assimilated yet unconverted, that it seemed to him equally simple his lawful heir should after his death carry on the grey old bank in the white American light. He was at pains to intensify this light, however, by sending the boy home for his education. Ralph spent several terms at an American school, and took a degree at an American university, after which, as he struck his father on his return as even redundantly native, he was placed for some three years in residence at Oxford. Oxford swallowed up Harvard, and Ralph became at last English enough. His outward conformity to the manners that surrounded him was nonetheless the mask of a mind that greatly enjoyed its independence on which nothing long imposed itself and which naturally inclined to adventure and irony indulged in a boundless liberty of appreciation he began with being a young man of promise at oxford he distinguished himself to his father's ineffable satisfaction and the people about him said it was a thousand pities so clever a fellow should be shut out from a career he might have had a career by returning to his own country though this point is shrouded in uncertainty and even if mr touchett had been willing to part with him which was not the case it would have gone hard with him to put a watery waste permanently between himself and the old man whom he regarded as his best friend ralph was not only fond of his father he admired him he enjoyed the opportunity of observing him daniel touchett to his perception was a man of genius and though he himself had no aptitude for the banking mystery he made a point of learning enough of it to measure the great figure his father had played it was not this however he mainly relished it was the fine ivory surface polished as by the english air that the old man had opposed to possibilities of penetration daniel touchett had been neither at harvard nor at oxford and it was his own fault if he had placed in his son's hands the key to modern criticism. Ralph, whose head was full of ideas which his father had never guessed, had a high esteem for the latter's originality. Americans, rightly or wrongly, are commended for the ease with which they adapt themselves to foreign conditions, but Mr. Touchett had made of the very limits of his pliancy half the ground of his general success he had retained in their freshness most of his marks of primary pressure. His tone, as his son always noted with pleasure, was that of the more luxuriant parts of New England. At the end of his life he had become, on his own ground, as mellow as he was rich. He combined consummate shrewdness with the disposition superficially to fraternise, and his social position, on which he had never wasted a care— had the firm perfection of an unthumbed fruit. It was perhaps his want of imagination and of what is called the historic consciousness, but to many of the impressions usually made by English life upon the cultivated stranger, his sense was completely closed. There were certain differences he had never perceived, certain habits he had never formed, certain obscurities he had never sounded. As regards these latter, On the day he had sounded them, his son would have thought less well of him. Ralph, on leaving Oxford, had spent a couple of years in travelling, after which he had found himself perched on a high stool in his father's bank. The responsibility and honour of such positions is not, I believe, measured by the height of the stool, which depends upon other considerations ralph indeed who had very long legs was fond of standing and even of walking about at his work to this exercise however he was obliged to devote but a limited period for at the end of some eighteen months he had become aware of his being seriously out of health he had caught a violent cold which fixed itself on his lungs and threw them into dire confusion he had to give up work and apply to the letter the sorry injunction to take care of himself. At first he slighted the task. It appeared to him it was not himself in the least he was taking care of, but an uninteresting and uninterested person with whom he had nothing in common. This person, however, improved on acquaintance, and Ralph grew at last to have a certain grudging tolerance, even an undemonstrative respect for him. Misfortune makes strange bedfellows and our young man feeling that he had something at stake in the matter it usually struck him as his reputation for ordinary wit devoted to his graceless charge an amount of attention of which note was duly taken and which had at least the effect of keeping the poor fellow alive one of his lungs began to heal the other promised to follow its example and he was assured that he might outweather a dozen winters if he would betake himself to those climates in which consumptives chiefly congregate as he had grown extremely fond of london he cursed the flatness of exile but at the same time that he cursed he conformed and gradually when he found his sensitive organ grateful even for grim favours he conferred them with a lighter hand he wintered abroad as the phrase is basked in the sun stopped at home when the wind blew went to bed when it rained, and once or twice, when it had snowed overnight, almost never got up again. A secret hoard of indifference, like a thick cake a fond old nurse might have slipped into his first school outfit, came to his aid and helped to reconcile him to sacrifice, since at best he was too ill for aught but that arduous game. As he said to himself, there was really nothing he had wanted very much to do, so that he had at least not renounced the field of valour. At present, however, the fragrance of forbidden fruit seemed occasionally to float past him and remind him that the finest of pleasures is the rush of action. Living as he now lived was like reading a good book in a poor translation, a meagre entertainment for a young man who felt that he might have been an excellent linguist. He had good winters and poor winters and while the former lasted he was sometimes the sport of a vision of virtual recovery. But this vision was dispelled some three years before the occurrence of the incidents with which this history opens. He had on that occasion remained later than usual in England, and had been overtaken by bad weather before reaching Algiers. He arrived more dead than alive, and lay there for several weeks between life and death. His convalescence was a miracle, but the first use he made of it was to assure himself that such miracles happened but once. He said to himself that his hour was in sight, and that it behooved him to keep his eyes upon it, yet that it was also open to him to spend the interval as agreeably as might be consistent with such a preoccupation. With the prospect of losing them, the simple use of his faculties became an exquisite pleasure, it seemed to him the joys of contemplation had never been sounded he was far from the time when he had found it hard that he should be obliged to give up the idea of distinguishing himself an idea none the less importunate for being vague and none the less delightful for having had to struggle in the same breast with bursts of inspiring self-criticism his friends at present judged him more cheerful and attributed it to a theory over which they shook their heads knowingly that he would recover his health his serenity was but the array of wild flowers niched in his ruin it was very probably this sweet-tasting property of the observed thing in itself that was mainly concerned in ralph's quickly stirred interest in the advent of a young lady who was evidently not insipid If he was consideringly disposed, something told him, here was occupation enough for a succession of days. It may be added, in summary, that the imagination of loving, as distinguished from that of being loved, had still a place in his reduced sketch. He had only forbidden himself the riot of expression. However, he shouldn't inspire his cousin with a passion, nor would she be able, even should she try, to help him to one. "'And now, tell me about the young lady,' he said to his mother. "'What do you mean to do with her?' Mrs. Touchett was prompt. "'I mean to ask your father to invite her to stay three or four weeks at Garden Court.' "'You needn't stand on any such ceremony as that,' said Ralph. "'My father will ask her as a matter of course.' "'I don't know about that. She's my niece. She's not his.' "'Good Lord, dear mother, what a sense of property!' That's all the more reason for his asking her. But after that—I mean after three months, for it's absurd asking the poor girl to remain but for three or four paltry weeks—what do you mean to do with her? I mean to take her to Paris. I mean to get her clothing. Ah, yes, that's of course. But independently of that? I shall invite her to spend the autumn with me in Florence. You don't rise above detail, dear mother, said Ralph. I should like to know what you mean to do with her in a general way. "'My duty,' Mrs. Touchett declared. "'I suppose you pity her very much,' she added. "'No, I don't think I pity her. "'She doesn't strike me as inviting compassion. "'I think I envy her. "'Before being sure, however, "'give me a hint of where you see your duty.' "'In showing her four European countries,' I shall leave her the choice of two of them, and in giving her the opportunity of perfecting herself in French, which she already knows very well. Ralph frowned a little. That sounds rather dry, even allowing her the choice of two of the countries. If it's dry, said his mother with a laugh, you can leave Isabel alone to water it. She is as good as a summer rain any day. Do you mean she's a gifted being? I DON'T KNOW WHETHER SHE'S A GIFTED BEING, BUT SHE'S A CLEVER GIRL, WITH A STRONG WILL AND A HIGH TEMPER. SHE HAS NO IDEA OF BEING BORED. I CAN IMAGINE THAT, SAID RALPH. AND THEN HE ADDED ABRUPTLY, HOW DO YOU TWO GET ON? DO YOU MEAN BY THAT THAT I'M A BORE? I DON'T THINK SHE FINDS ME ONE. SOME GIRLS MIGHT, I KNOW, BUT Isabel's TOO CLEVER FOR THAT. I THINK I GREATLY AMUSE HER. "'We get on because I understand her. "'I know the sort of girl she is. "'She's very frank, and I'm very frank. "'We know just what to expect of each other.' "'Ah, dear mother!' Ralph exclaimed. "'One always knows what to expect of you. "'You've never surprised me but once, and that's to-day, "'in presenting me with a pretty cousin "'whose existence I had never suspected.' "'Do you think her so very pretty?' very pretty indeed but i don't insist upon that it's her general air of being someone in particular that strikes me who is this rare creature and what is she where did you find her and how did you make her acquaintance i found her in an old house at albany sitting in a dreary room on a rainy day reading a heavy book and boring herself to death she didn't know she was bored but when I left her no doubt of it, she seemed very grateful for the service. You may say I shouldn't have enlightened her. I should have let her alone. There's a good deal in that, but I acted conscientiously. I thought she was meant for something better. It occurred to me that it would be a kindness to take her about and introduce her to the world. She thinks she knows a great deal of it, like most American girls but like most American girls she's ridiculously mistaken. If you want to know, I thought she would do me credit. I like to be well thought of, and for a woman of my age there's no greater convenience in some ways than an attractive niece. You know I had seen nothing of my sister's children for years. I disapproved entirely of the father. But I always meant to do something for them when he should have gone to his reward. I ascertained where they were to be found, and without any preliminaries, went and introduced myself. There were two others of them, both of whom are married, but I saw only the elder, who has, by the way, a very uncivil husband. The wife, whose name is Lily, jumped at the idea of my taking an interest in Isabel. She said it was just what her sister needed, that someone should take an interest in her she spoke of her as you might speak of some young person of genius in want of encouragement and patronage it may be that isabel's a genius but in that case i've not yet learned her special line mrs ludlow was especially keen about my taking her to europe they all regard europe over there as the land of emigration of rescue a refuge for their superfluous population isabel herself seemed very glad to come and the thing was easily arranged. There was a little difficulty about the money question, as she seemed averse to being under pecuniary obligations. But she has a small income, and she supposes herself to be travelling at her own expense. Ralph had listened attentively to this judicious report, by which his interest in the subject of it was not impaired. Ah, if she's a genius, he said, we must find out her special line is it by chance for flirting? I don't think so. You may suspect that at first, but you'll be wrong. You won't, I think, in any way, be easily right about her. Warburton's wrong, then, Ralph rejoicingly exclaimed. He flatters himself that he has made that discovery. His mother shook her head. Lord Warburton won't understand her. He needn't try. He's very intelligent, said Ralph. "'But it's right he should be puzzled once in a while.' "'Isabel will enjoy puzzling a lord,' Mrs. Touchett remarked. Her son frowned a little. "'What does she know about lords?' "'Nothing at all. That will puzzle him all the more.' Ralph greeted these words with a laugh and looked out the window. Then, "'Are you not going down to see my father?' he asked. "'At a quarter to eight, said Mrs. Touchett. Her son looked at his watch. "'You've another quarter of an hour, then. Tell me some more about Isabel.' After which, as Mrs. Touchett declined his invitation, declaring that he must find out for himself, "'Well,' he pursued, "'she'll certainly do you credit. But won't she also give you trouble?' "'I hope not. But if she does, I shall not shrink from it. I never do that.' "'She strikes me as very natural,' said Ralph. "'Natural people are not the most trouble.' No, said Ralph, you yourself are a proof of that. You're extremely natural, and I'm sure you have never troubled any one. It takes trouble to do that. But tell me this. It just occurs to me. Is Isabel capable of making herself disagreeable? Ah, cried his mother, you ask too many questions. Find that out for yourself. His questions, however, were not exhausted. All this time, he said, "'You've not told me what you intend to do with her.' "'Do with her? "'You talk as if she were a yard of calico. "'I shall do absolutely nothing with her, "'and she herself will do everything she chooses. "'She gave me notice of that.' "'What you meant, then, in your telegram "'was that her character's independent?' "'I never know what I mean in my telegrams, "'especially those I send from America. "'Clearness is too expensive.' "'Come down to your father.' "'It's not yet a quarter to eight, said Ralph. "'I must allow for his impatience,' Mrs. Touchett answered. Ralph knew what to think of his father's impatience, but making no rejoinder, he offered his mother his arm. This put it in his power, as they descended together, to stop her a moment on the middle landing of the staircase, the broad, low, wide-armed staircase of time-blackened oak, which was one of the most striking features of Garden Court. "'You've no plan of marrying her?' he smiled. "'Marrying her? I should be sorry to play her such a trick. But apart from that, she's perfectly able to marry herself. She has every facility.' "'Do you mean to say she has a husband picked out?' "'I don't know about a husband, but there's a young man in Boston,' Ralph went on he had no desire to hear about the young man in boston as my father says they're always engaged his mother had told him that he must satisfy his curiosity at the source and it soon became evident he should not want for occasion he had a good deal of talk with his young kinswoman when the two had been left together in the drawing-room lord warburton who had ridden over from his own house some ten miles distant remounted and took his departure before dinner. And an hour after this meal was ended, Mr. and Mrs. Touchett, who appeared to have quite emptied the measure of their forms, withdrew, under the valid pretext of fatigue, to their respective apartments. The young man spent an hour with his cousin. Though she had been travelling half the day, she appeared in no degree spent. She was really tired, she knew it, and knew she should pay for it on the morrow but it was her habit at this period to carry exhaustion to its furthest point and confess to it only when dissimulation broke down a fine hypocrisy was for the present possible she was interested she was as she said to herself floated she asked ralph to show her the pictures there were a great many in the house most of them of his own choosing the best were arranged in an oaken gallery of charming proportions which had a sitting-room at either end of it, and which in the evening was usually lighted. The light was insufficient to show the pictures to advantage, and the visit might have stood over to the morrow. This suggestion Ralph had ventured to make, but Isabel looked disappointed, smiling still, however, and said, If you please, I should like to see them just a little. She was eager, she knew she was eager, and now seemed so. She couldn't help it. She doesn't take suggestions, Ralph said to himself, but he said it without irritation. Her pressure amused and even pleased him. The lamps were on brackets at intervals, and if the light was imperfect it was genial. It fell upon the vague squares of rich colour and on the faded gilding of heavy frames. It made a sheen on the polished floor of the gallery. Ralph took a candlestick and moved about, pointing out the things he liked. Isabel, inclining to one picture after another, indulged in little exclamations and murmurs. She was evidently a judge. She had a natural taste. He was struck with that. She took a candlestick herself and held it slowly here and there. She lifted it high, and as she did so, he found himself pausing in the middle of the place and bending his eyes much less upon the pictures than on her presence. He lost nothing in truth by these wandering glances, for she was better worth looking at than most works of art. She was undeniably spare, and ponderably light, and provably tall. When people had wished to distinguish her from the other two Miss Archers, they had always called her the willowy one. Her hair, which was dark even to blackness, had been an object of envy to many women. Her light-grey eyes, a little too firm perhaps in her graver moments, had an enchanting range of concession. They walked slowly up one side of the gallery and down the other. And then she said, Well, now I know more than I did when I began. You apparently have a great passion for knowledge, her cousin returned. I think I have. Most girls are horridly ignorant. You strike me as different from most girls. ''Ah, some of them would, but the way they're talked about,'' murmured Isabel, who preferred not to dilate just yet on herself. Then, in a moment to change the subject, ''Please tell me, isn't there a ghost?'' she went on. ''A ghost?'' ''A castle, spectre, a thing that appears. We call them ghosts in America.'' ''So we do here when we see them.'' ''You do see them, then? You ought to, in this romantic old house.'' "'It's not a romantic old house,' said Ralph. "'You'll be disappointed if you count on that. "'It's a dismally prosaic one. "'There's no romance here but what you may have brought with you.' "'I've brought a great deal, but it seems to me I've brought it to the right place.' "'To keep it out of harm, certainly. "'Nothing will ever happen to it here between my father and me.' Isabel looked at him for a moment. "'Is there never anyone here but your father and you?' Uh, my mother of course oh i know your mother she's not romantic haven't you other people very few i'm sorry for that i like so much to see people oh we'll invite all the county to amuse you said ralph now you're making fun of me the girl answered rather gravely who was the gentleman on the lawn when i arrived a county neighbour he doesn't come very often "'I'm sorry for that. I liked him,' said Isabel. "'Why, it seemed to me that you barely spoke to him,' Ralph objected. "'Never mind. I like him all the same. I like your father, too, immensely.' "'You can't do better than that. He's the dearest of the dear.' "'I'm so sorry he's ill,' said Isabel. "'You must help me to nurse him. You ought to be a good nurse.' "'I don't think I am. I've been told I'm not. I'm said to have too many theories.' "'But you haven't told me about the ghost,' she added. "'Ralph, however, gave no heed to this observation. "'You like my father, and you like Lord Warburton. "'I infer also that you like my mother.' "'I like your mother very much, because—because,' because, and Isabel found herself attempting to assign a reason for her affection for Mrs. Touchett. "'Ah, we never know why,' said her companion, laughing. ''I always know,'' the girl answered. ''It's because she doesn't expect one to like her. She doesn't care whether one does or not.'' ''So you adore her, out of perversity? Well, I take greatly after my mother,'' said Ralph. ''I don't believe you do at all. You wish people to like you, and you try to make them do it.'' ''Good heavens, how you see through one!'' he cried, with a dismay that was not altogether jocular. ''But I like you all the same,'' his cousin went on. ''The way to clinch the matter will be to show me the ghost.'' Ralph shook his head sadly. ''I might show it to you, but you'd never see it. The privilege isn't given to everyone. It's not enviable. It has never been seen by a young, happy, innocent person like you. You must have suffered first, have suffered greatly, have gained some miserable knowledge. In that way, your eyes are open to it.'' i saw it long ago said ralph i told you just now i'm very fond of knowledge isabel answered yes of happy knowledge of pleasant knowledge but you haven't suffered and you're not made to suffer i hope you'll never see the ghost she had listened to him attentively with a smile on her lips but with a certain gravity in her eyes charming as he found her she had struck him as rather presumptuous Indeed, it was a part of her charm, and he wondered what she would say. "'I'm not afraid, you know,' she said, which seemed quite presumptuous enough. "'You're not afraid of suffering?' "'Yes, I'm afraid of suffering, but I'm not afraid of ghosts, and I think people suffer too easily,' she said. "'I don't believe you do,' said Ralph, looking at her with his hands in his pockets. "'I don't think that's a fault,' she answered it's not absolutely necessary to suffer we were not made for that you were not certainly i'm not speaking of myself and she wandered off a little no it isn't a fault said her cousin it's a merit to be strong only if you don't suffer they call you hard isabel remarked they passed out of the smaller drawing-room into which they had returned from the gallery and paused in the hall at the foot of the staircase. Here Ralph presented his companion with her bedroom candle, which he had taken from a niche. "'Never mind what they call you. When you do suffer, they call you an idiot. The great point's to be as happy as possible.' She looked at him a little. She had taken her candle and placed her foot on the oaken stair. "'Well,' she said, "'that's what I came to Europe for, to be as happy as possible.' "'Good night.' "'Good night. I wish you all success, and shall be very glad to contribute to it.' She turned away, and he watched her as she slowly ascended. Then, with his hands always in his pockets, he went back to the empty drawing-room. End of chapter 5